This afternoon we'll be taking our instruction from Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism and in that Lord's Day we learn about God's ability and God's willingness to help and save us as his people. And in preparation for that instruction we'll read from the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 40-45 here in this passage early on in Jesus' ministry. He cleanses a leper who comes to him with a request for for healing. Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 and 40, this is the word of the living and almighty God. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands firm and sure forevermore. As I said, we'll take our instruction this afternoon from the Heidelberg Catechism, and we'll look at Lord's Day 9. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father." This is the confession of the church of all times and all places. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, here in Lord's Day 9, we make a confession about God's omnipotence. Now, I realize that that word isn't specifically used here in this question and answer, but when we talk about God's omnipotence, we are talking about God's almighty power. And so we are talking about the power by which he's called all things to existence and the power by which he continues to uphold and govern all that he has made. Which means, of course, that we're talking about the power by which he's given us life and also the power by which he directs the course of our lives. Now, generally speaking, I don't think that this is a confession that we have too much difficulty making. I don't think, for instance, that it's a a difficult thing or a controversial matter for us to assert that that God is omnipotent, that God is the almighty and, and the living God of heaven and earth. Where we might struggle, however, is in believing that he will use this almighty power in benevolent and beneficial ways. Which is to say there are times when we might struggle to believe that 
that God will use His almighty power to bless us, and that He'll use His almighty power to bring about our good. My suspicion is that there are, broadly speaking, three reasons that we sometimes find ourselves struggling in this regard. And the first of those reasons is because our experience has been that that powerful people, including our own fathers, that they don't always use their power wisely or well. The sad reality is that our fathers, and when I speak about our fathers here, I don't just mean our biological fathers, but I also mean the, the various authorities under whose government we live, Sometimes they, they use their power in ways that are abusive. Sometimes they don't wield their authority rightly. And in this fallen and sinful world, that can be true of even the best and even the most devoted fathers. Simply put, our experience has been that, that fathers always have power, but they don't always have affection or compassion. Or perhaps we could put it this way, our experience has been that our fathers are always able, but they aren't necessarily always willing. And the second reason that we might struggle to make this confession is because here in this life, we, we often endure suffering, we often endure trials. And in such circumstances, we can, we can find ourselves struggling to understand why God God whom we know to be an omnipotent God, an omnipotent God who governs our lives, we can struggle to know why He doesn't use some of that power to alleviate our suffering, or why He doesn't use His power to deliver us from our distresses. Finally, our doubts about God's willingness to act compassionately towards us, those doubts can be exacerbated by the very real awareness that we are entirely unworthy of such care and concern. The trouble is that if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have acted in ways that have grieved the Spirit. We know that we've acted in ways that have shamed the Son. and We know that we've acted in ways that have aroused the Father's indignation. And that awareness, it can cause us to doubt whether, whether Father will really act in compassion and tender-hearted ways towards us. And for those reasons, it turns out, it turns out that the leper about whom we read in Mark's gospel, that this leper proves to be rather archetypal in his behavior. Because here is the thing about that leper. When he sought out Jesus... He didn't have any doubts about Jesus' ability to save him, but he was decidedly less certain about Jesus' willingness to do so. Now, to be fair to this fellow, given his circumstances, his concerns weren't entirely unfounded. Consider, after all, who this man was. He was a leper which is a category of existence that was decidedly more well-defined, a category of existence that was far more alarming during those days than it is during our own. The reality is 
Leprosy isn't something that we tend to encounter very often here in Canada. And it turns out that if by some set of circumstances you were ever to find yourself contracting some form of that disease, you could take a combination of antibiotics that have proven extremely effective in in killing off the bacteria that, that causes this illness. But that was far from the case in the ancient world. In that world, there was no cure for leprosy. And indeed, in Jewish society at that time, it was widely believed that that the only one who was actually capable of curing leprosy was God Himself. Here's the thing, though. The true horror of leprosy, it wasn't the physical ravages of the illness. The true horror of leprosy was the, the social and the religious consequences of having been diagnosed with that disease. And that's because anyone who was diagnosed with leprosy, they were declared to be unclean, and they were condemned to remain in that state of uncleanness so long as they remained sick. And existing in a, in a permanent state of uncleanness, it had some very dire, it had some very dramatic consequences. First of all, lepers were required to, to live outside of the community. They were required to live apart and and to live in isolation from the rest of society. They were also required to let their hair grow long, and and they had to wear torn and and ragged clothes. They were to cover the bottom half of their face. And whenever they found themselves in proximity to, to anyone who wasn't a leper, they were required to warn others of their presence by by crying out, unclean, unclean, as they passed by. And so lepers, lepers were entirely excluded from society. They were completely cut off from contact with their families. They couldn't have any interaction with their spouses, with their children. Worst of all, on account of their ritual impurity, lepers were forbidden from entering into the temple. And that meant that not only were these lepers cast out into isolation, not only were they cut off from their families and friends, it meant that they couldn't even find any comfort in worship. Now, all of these regulations regarding lepers, they have been actually explicitly set out by God. And you can read about these restrictions in the book of Leviticus. You can look in Leviticus 13 and 14. And what we've got to appreciate here is that God had, he had put these guidelines, he had put these restrictions in place, and he'd done so with the intention that, that lepers, they would function as a kind of living parable for people. They were a living, breathing, walking, talking parable. And this was the truth insofar as their illness, it served as an outer expression of an inward condition, their inner condition being the the corruption that that flows forth from our sinful hearts. And it's for all these reasons that the Jewish historian Josephus, he described lepers as being like living corpses. They were, in effect, he said, the walking dead. And people were loathed. 
They were absolutely loath to come anywhere near them. And they were loath to come anywhere near a leper because they were afraid of, of becoming ritually unpure, impure themselves. It's important for us to be aware of these things so that we can have some sense, so that we can have some appreciation for the sheer enormity of what it is that this man has done. Because far from standing at a distance, this man barges his way through the crowd and he throws himself down directly in front of Jesus. He, he throws himself down at Jesus' feet. And in so doing, this man, he had transgressed every single rule, every single regulation and custom that had prescribed and governed his behavior. And not only had he completely broken every rule and, and discounted every custom, but he had simultaneously assaulted Jesus. And he had assaulted Jesus by threatening his ritual purity. And then to top it all off, he asks the one whose purity he has risked if he would be willing to make him clean. Now the really shocking thing, the really shocking thing about this passage is that the leper's behavior isn't the most shocking thing about this passage. And that's because as shockingly transgressive as his behavior was, it is the way that, that Jesus reacts. It's the way that Jesus responds to this man that is truly astonishing. And that's because the, the expected response for any devout Jew of that time, the expected response would have been to recoil. The expected response would have been to pull away in horror and disgust and to have tried to do everything that you could to, to put some distance between yourself and this outcast. But that is not, it is not the way that Jesus responds. It's not the way that he reacted. Instead, far from recoiling, Jesus responds by moving towards this man. And Jesus doesn't just draw closer to him. We're told here by Mark that Jesus reached out and he touched him. And Jesus' touch, it wasn't just a, a quick brush of the hand either. The the language that Mark uses here in these verses suggests that Jesus took hold of him. Jesus doesn't just brush him. He doesn't just sort of wave his hand over him. No, Jesus takes hold of this leper. And having taken hold of him, Jesus makes, he makes two declarative statements. First of all, he declares his willingness to grant this man's request. I will, he says. I'm willing. And the second thing he does is to speak a word of command. He speaks a word of command and he makes this man clean. He declares him to be clean. And it's worth noting what Jesus says here. Jesus declares him to be clean. And what matters here is that Jesus doesn't say to this man, be healed. He doesn't say be healed. Because healing isn't the deepest need of this man's heart. Healing was just part of what he needed. What this man needed more than anything else was cleansing. He needed to be made clean again. 
And what were the consequences? What were the consequences of the master's touch and command? Immediately. And there's that wonderful word. Mark loves that word. You read through Mark's gospel, it's immediately, immediately, immediately. He uses that word all the time. Immediately, Mark says, the man was cleansed. Now, it's worth noting what an incredible physical transformation this would have involved. If you read the the parallel account of these events in Luke's gospel, one of the things Luke mentions is that this man wasn't just a leper. Luke tells us that this man was full of leprosy. And that means that his body, it would have been It would have been ravaged by the disease. Now, sometimes when you hear sermons on leprosy, people will talk about leprosy and they'll speak about it as being a kind of physical rotting, a physical decay of the body that makes it so horrible. But that doesn't actually seem to have been the case. Rather, the consequence of leprosy is that there is a dulling of pain sensitivity. And with that dulling of pain sensitivity, people lost the feeling in their fingers, they lost the feelings in their toes, in their ears, and their noses. They lost the the sense of feeling in those extremities. And of course, what we know is that pain is a, a warning sign for injury. And so what tended to happen to lepers is that they didn't realize that they picked up something that was hot. They didn't realize that they cut a foot. They didn't realize that that something had happened to them. Because they didn't feel those injuries or notice them, they didn't stop what they were doing or they didn't take care of them. And then those, those external regions of their body would become infected. And that was the issue. And I mention this because this lack of sensitivity to pain And the consequences that this has, I think this is likely part of the reason that leprosy made such a useful and and instructive parabolic image of the internal consequences of sin. Because what does sin do? What effect does sin have in our hearts? What sin does is it dulls our sensitivity. And in particular, what sin does is to dull our sensitivity to the consequences of sin. And the longer that we live in sin, the duller our sensitivity becomes and the more willingly we move into sin without fear of its consequences. And so I think that there's a reason there that the Lord chose leprosy to be an instructive, parabolic way of speaking about sin. But as we've noted, Jesus doesn't just heal this man. Oh, sorry. But the point here is that healing this man, it would have involved more than just a kind of antibiotic victory over the disease. It would have involved a complete restoration, a complete restoration of all of the ravages of that disease, a complete restoration of this man's body and of his strength, and of his capacity. But as we've noted, Jesus doesn't just heal this man, he also cleanses him. Which means that physical healing, it wasn't wasn't the most important part of what this man received from Jesus. No, the true gift was being cleansed. The true gift was being restored, restored to his place in his community. With that restoration, think about what what this man got back. Having been cleansed, 
of that impurity. It meant that he could return to his home. He could go back to his family. He could could go back to his people. He could live with them again. And it meant that he could go back to worship. It meant that he could go back to God's temple. And that he could worship amongst the communion of the saints once more. Being cleansed then was more than just being healed. He didn't just get a restoration of his body. No, as Jesus cleansed him, this man, he receives his life back. He receives his identity back. Now, crucially, Mark doesn't just tell us what Jesus did for this man. He also tells us why Jesus did what he did. And what Mark tells us is that Jesus was moved to compassion. He was moved to compassion by this man's plight. The language that Mark uses here in this passage, it's visceral language. Now, in Providence, we have sort of have something from time to time that I've taken to calling New Word Sunday. And on New Word Sunday, we pick a word and we learn a new vocabulary word. We're going to do that today here in Ancaster. It is New Word Sunday. And the word that you're going to lose, the word that you're going to learn is viscera. Now, what are your viscera? Your viscera are your internal organs. They're all of these things that are packaged up right here. These are your viscera. And what that means is that if you have a visceral reaction to something, then you are having a kind of gut reaction. And not a gut reaction in the the sense of a, a kind of vague or a kind of indefinite way, but a gut reaction in the sense of a reaction that comes from the deepest part of your person. A reaction that involves your innermost being. And so when Mark tells us that that Jesus was moved with pity, that he had a visceral reaction to this man, he's saying that this man's circumstances, that his plight, that it triggered a response that bursts forth, it springs forth from Jesus' core. It comes from his innermost self. And Mark records these events in order to teach us. He records these events in order to show us something about our Savior's hearts. He records these events so that we would know who Jesus is and that we would know who he is in his innermost self, in the very core of his being. And Mark deliberately situates this account. He situates it right at the outset of his gospel. At the outset of his gospel, where where he describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he tells us about Jesus' first missionary journey through Judea. And Mark positions this account here because he wants us to be 100% clear about why Jesus has come. He wants us to know that Jesus came because he was moved to pity. And he was moved to pity, not just by the lostness of this particular leper, but he was moved to pity by the lost condition of sinners. And so Mark wants us to understand that Jesus had come because in the deepest core of his being, 
He was moved to pity by the lostness of our condition, and he had come to give sinners their lives back, and to give them their lives back by cleansing them, by cleansing them of their sin. By means of this story, Mark wants to underscore the truth that Jesus then, he had both the heart and he had the power to do exactly that. He wants us to see here in these verses that Jesus was not only willing to rescue sinners, but that he was able to rescue sinners. And he drives that home by making this point and placing this account right at the outset of his gospel, right at the outset of his description of Jesus' ministry. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, their temple, that's wonderfully good news to be sure, but we've spent a lot of time speaking about Jesus, and we know that Jesus is God's Son. And in Lord's Day 9, we make a confession about God the Father. And so, shouldn't we be speaking this afternoon about the Father's willingness? Shouldn't we be speaking this afternoon about the Father's ability to save? Well, here, beloved, we've got, to be, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful not to forget what Jesus had to say about himself and what Jesus had to say about his earthly ministry. And in that respect, if you're able, I'd like you to take up your Bibles and turn with me to John 14. Turn with me to John 14, and we aren't going to read those verses, but we're going to take a sort of broad overview of John 14, verses 1 through 11. Just keep John 14, 1 through 11 open with you. Now, what we need to appreciate here is that the words that John speaks here in John 14, or sorry, the words that Jesus speaks here in John 14, 1 through 11, these words were spoken in an effort to calm the hearts and to calm the fears of his disciples. You see, Jesus knew that shortly he'd be parted from them. He knew what we would celebrate today. He knew that we would celebrate his death, right? He knew that Good Friday was coming. He knew that he was going to be parted from his disciples, and he knew that this would result in them being disillusioned. This would be, result in them being disoriented. And he knew that they were going to feel profoundly dislocated after the crucifixion. And so what does Jesus do here in these verses? He forewarns them. He forewarns them and he comforts them by assuring them that all is not lost and that they have not hoped in vain. And he does this. He does this by anchoring them in who he is as God. And so he assures them that even though he is going to be parted from them, that they are going to remain firmly held in the Father's love. And he promises them that they're going to be granted comfort and that they're going to be granted understanding by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom he would send. Now, within that overall context, let's look closely at the way that Jesus responds to Philip and Philip's request in verse 8. What does Philip say here in verse 8? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father 
and it is enough for us. Jesus has said these things to to those. uh, Jesus has said that all those who have known him, that they have also known the Father. That's been the message of the preceding verses. If you have known me, you have known the Father. And Philip, Philip's whose heart longs for the confirmation of these things, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Essentially, Philip is saying here in verse 8, look, Lord, look, we can see that you're trying to encourage us. We can see that you're trying to comfort us and that you're trying to build us up, and we really appreciate that. But you could really, you could really help us out here. You could really cement our faith if you would just let us see the Father. Now notice how Jesus responds to Philip. Notice his compassionate response. He doesn't mock Philip. He doesn't deride him. He doesn't belittle Philip for asking the impossible, so to speak. Instead, what he does is to lovingly correct Philip. And he does so by saying, Philip, you need to understand that I have already done what you've asked and that I've already shown you the Father. And you've seen him every single time you have looked at me. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, what he means is that every time that the disciples had looked at Jesus, they had seen the Father's heart. Because every single time they looked at him, they had seen how the Father had been moved to pity. And they'd seen how the Father had been moved to compassion. And how he'd been moved to pity and compassion in the very core of his being when he had looked out into the darkness of sin and he had seen us there in our lost and our fallen estate. And despite that fact, when he looked at us, when God the Father looked into the darkness and he saw us there covered in all our filth, and covered in all our shame. When he looked into the darkness and he saw us standing there lost, he did not recoil from us. And not only didn't he recoil from us, he didn't turn away from us. Instead, he drew near to us. And he drew near to us by the mercy and by the compassion of his heart. And he drew close to us. He drew close to us with the intention of cleansing us from our sins. And how is it, loved ones, how is it that the Father has drawn near to us? Well, he's done so by coming to us in his Son. His Son whom he'd sent into the world to touch our hearts with the gospel and thereby to declare us clean. But the incredible thing is that Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that that in him we haven't just seen the Father, but that in him we've also heard the Father. Because what does Jesus say just a few verses later? What does he say about his ministry? What he says is this, 
The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Incredible thing here is that Jesus responds to Philip by saying, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've heard me, you've heard the Father. And loved ones, we need to understand that Jesus had come into this world to do his Father's will. More than that, he'd come to perfectly manifest the Father's will before the world. And Jesus did that, first of all, in who he was, the Son of God, who in love for his Father laid aside his glory and drew so near to us, who came so close to us, that he became one of us when he took on our human flesh. But he also fulfilled that calling in everything he did. And he fulfilled that calling in everything he said. Which means that every single word that he ever uttered was spoken in perfect conformity with and as a perfect expression of his Father's will. And that included the four little words he spoke to that leper. The four little words he said to that leper, I will be clean. Those words were also an expression of his Father's will. And we know that they were an expression of his Father's will because having been spoken in accordance with his Father's will, they accomplished the Father's will when, as Mark says, immediately, immediately he was cleansed from his leprosy. The point of all of this is to say that in Jesus, we see the fullest expression of God's omnipotence. We see the fullest expression of his almighty power, but we also bear witness to the fullest expression of the Father's compassion and of the Father's merciful heart. We see We see that not only in his willingness to come into this world, but in Christ's willingness to offer himself on the cross as the ultimate expression of God's love for sinners and as the ultimate expression of his Father's desire to be reconciled with those sinners and to live with them in peace. And you know what? Even at this early stage of Jesus' ministry, We see evidence of his willingness. We say evidence of his willingness to go to the cross. And we see evidence of his willingness to trade places with us. And to offer himself in our place on that cross. I want you to take careful note of how this passage ends. Jesus sternly commands this man. He sternly commands him not to tell anyone about how he had been cleansed. And when I say sternly, I mean sternly, because Jesus uses precisely the same language here to command the demons to silence. The language that Jesus uses to say to the demons, be silent, be quiet, is precisely the same language that he uses to this man when he says, be silent. Don't tell anyone about how you have been cleansed. Sadly, however, this man didn't follow Jesus' commands. 
In fact, he went out and he did exactly the opposite of what he'd been commanded to do. And that decision, it had dramatic consequences for Jesus, and it had dramatic consequences for Jesus' ministry. Mark says that from this point on, Jesus could no longer openly enter into any town, and that Jesus was forced out into the wilderness. He's forced out into ever more desolate and remote locations. Well, let's just think for a moment here about what has happened. As a consequence of Jesus' mercy, this man is cleansed, and because he is cleansed, he is welcomed back into community. He can go home. He can go back to town. He can go back to his family. He can go back into the cities. But as a consequence of this man's disobedience, Jesus is pushed outside. He's pushed outside of community. He's pushed into the wilderness and into the waste places. And so the upshot of all of this is that as a result of cleansing this man, Jesus and this man trade places with one another. But here is the wonderful news of the gospel. Trading places is precisely, it's precisely what he'd come to do. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to do that right at the start of his earthly ministry, but he was also willing to do it at the end of his earthly ministry. And his willingness to trade places with sinners, it was rooted in his deep and his abiding love for his Father, whose will he understood to be both compassionate and good. And so, loved ones, when we struggle, and we will, when we struggle to believe that Father's will is truly good, when we struggle to believe that His heart is truly compassionately inclined towards us, when we struggle to believe that He is not just able, but that He is also willing to use His almighty power to ensure that only that which is truly to our good ever befalls on us. When we struggle to believe those things, then we need only to look to our Savior. And we need only to look to Him crucified to be assured that Father really does love us. And that in all things, even in our griefs, even in our sorrows, and even in our distresses, in all things, Father is both willing and able to bring about our salvation. Amen.